Friends, let's open in our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah 29, you guys may remember that we were doing a series through the Old Testament. We we're going to survey God's salvation through the entire Old Testament and do it in a school year. And so we took a month-long break from that. We're back at it, and we're going to be looking at this passage. And um, I'm in Jeremiah chapter 29, beginning in verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Look at verse 4. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray for the Lord, to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let the prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to their dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we share with our four fathers of the faith, Israel, being in a strange and foreign and hostile land and longing to hear from you. And so I pray that your word falls fresh upon us. I pray that it makes sense of where we are and what we are to be doing because it makes sense of what you're doing in and through us for your glory in this world and in your kingdom. So we gladly give ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, we've talked a lot about this calendar year 2020 and how just devastating and miserable it has been. And so it's eye-opening to go back to our Bibles, particularly in this place in our series, and remember that if we think 2020 is bad, 586 B.C. was absolutely devastating. This is where we left Israel. There was a new superpower that Babylon had risen and knocked out Assyria and began moving its way towards Israel, dropping nations before it. And when it arrives, when she comes to Jerusalem in 586 BC, she lays a siege on the city, she conquers and sacks it and destroys most of its valuables. I mean, this was absolutely devastating. The temples destroyed, the king's palaces destroyed, the wall goes down. 
And Babylon, what she does with conquered nations is take their people and exile them. So truly take the best and the brightest, the elders, the prophets, those with skills, craftsmen, politicians, grabs all of them and marches them far, far away back to Babylon, back to a foreign land where they're going to use that kind of brain drain to serve that nation to make it more powerful. This was just awful. It was devastating. And Jeremiah writes about this in the book of Lamentations, which you can read just this gut-wrenching account of what it was like to be alive in those days and to see that devastation. But what I think brings the double trauma to God's people is that God reminds them here and elsewhere that this tragedy that's happening to them, it wasn't a fluke. It wasn't a coincidence. It didn't just so happen. This was actually God's plan. God sent Babylon to defeat Israel in punishment for her sin. Four times he says in our passage, I have sent you, I have delivered you, I have put you into exile. The whole move of this biblical story has been out of Babylon and to Jerusalem. I mean, we began this series with the Tower of Babel back in Genesis chapter 11, moving out of the Tower of Babel and towards the Promised Land. Abraham himself was called out of Babylon and towards the Promised Land. And now in judgment, we have this great reversal. All this work, hundreds of years of God building his kingdom in the promised land, and now that's gone, and the people of Israel are actually heading back to the land that they dreaded, the land that they ultimately came from. It's like they're going into the lion's den. They're going into hostile enemy territory. They're surrounded by people who hate We share some of this unsettledness with Israel. We, the church, we are the new Israel. This world that we live in, it's not our ultimate home. This world has no love for us and the things that we stand for. This world cheers our failures. And so we share with Israel some of the questions that must have been in their minds in that day because they are certainly in our minds today, and that is, what is God doing here? What is he doing and what is he up to? Can any kind of good come out of so much suffering? And how are we supposed to bide our time in this hostile place until we return to our ultimate home. That's what Israel was asking. That's what the church is asking. Well, in this hostile enemy territory, Israel and the church finds ourselves in, God gives us work to do. We said again and again in this series that earth is not the waiting room of heaven, that it's really the factory floor of God's kingdom, that he has commissioned us wherever we are in the story to do his work and to do his bidding. We spent three weeks in Acts chapter 2 talking about evangelism, that being our work to do. We talked last week from Isaiah 58 that justice and mercy is part of the work that we do. 
But the next commandments that come to us, I think in our passage, are just a little bit surprising because they're so domestic. I mean, they're just so mundane and plain. He says to us, church, this is what I want you to do. In this hostile enemy territory, this is what I want you to do as you wait for my coming. Verses five and six, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. That's the work I've given you. Why? Because it all builds towards verse seven, to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you in exile. How shocking that must have sounded to Israel to actually seek the welfare of Babylon and to do it by such plain and ordinary means. That command falls on us today in our exile, in our longing to be home. And it's these three rapid-fire commands But each of them has an element of something to do that we're commanded to do. Each of them has an element of what we're to enjoy in this command. And each of them have an element of how we're going to use this doing and this enjoying as blessing those around us. This is a public blessing that we display. Do and enjoy and bless. So let's just walk through each of these briefly. Number one, he says, verse 5 Build houses and live in them. Homes are a gift from God. They're a gift that he gives us. I mean, it's true that some of us are called, very few of us, to an itinerant ministry. We're going to be homeless and we're going to go elsewhere to preach the gospel. Jesus said, foxes have homes and holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The Apostle Paul was sent to be a missionary. There are people who have that calling, but by far the majority of us are invited to create a home to live in. And so this is God's command for us. As God provides, build a house, buy a house, rent a house, an apartment, a spare bedroom, and put down roots in enemy territory. There were some prophets in Jeremiah's day who were saying they shouldn't do this. They had just landed in Babylon and the prophets were saying, you're not going to be here long. Don't put down roots. Get ready. We're going to be back in Israel before you know it. That's what he's referring to in verses 8 and 9. And and Jeremiah is saying, that's not true. They're lying to you. This is not what's going to happen. I want you to put down roots because homemaking is this posture of semi-permanent that a believer is being called to hang in the balance, to make this beautiful, hospitable, homey place here on earth, all the while longing for, looking towards, praying to the end of that future home we will enjoy forever. So the command is, build the house. The enjoyment element is, live in it. You don't just build it, you don't just create it, but then you enjoy it, you live in it. Now, when Julie and I first got married, uh, we had the tension in our home, as I'm sure a lot of early marriages do, about the place of the home. Like, I didn't understand why we were spending money to put things in our home 
instead of spending money to go out and do things. I didn't know that. And so you had the philosophy of this bare Spartan quarters on one side and this idea of a home as a place that Joanna Gaines would be proud of. And we were trying to find somewhere in the middle. And so all of us are on that very journey, I hope, biblically seeing the home is actually supposed to be a warm and hospitable and a beautiful place, a God-honoring place, and yet it's never supposed to be an idol in our lives that competes with God. It is a place that we create that's a beautiful space that brings glory to God And part of the glory that he gains is that we enjoy it. We love in it. We live in it. We love being there. We love the rest that it brings to us. And so we do the command. We enjoy the command. And then we get this element like the 1 Corinthians 6. Your life is not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God with your body. That teases its way out into everything that we touch. My house is not my own, because I'm bought with a price, so I glorify God with it. This house, verse 7, is for the welfare of the city that I'm in. Isn't that a radical reorientation of the way we think about our home? I mean, when you think about your house, you may think about all the things that need to be done on it, all what you would like to do, what needs to be repainted. You may think about it as a retreat, a place to escape from the world and get to and shut the door and turn on the TV and now you're at ease and God is saying a home is a place that is rooted in enemy territory for the sake of the welfare of the city. It's going to be a blessing to your neighborhood. It's going to be a blessing to your community. That's a total reorientation about what a home is. And there are Two preeminent ways in scripture that God says we use our house. One of them is feeding people and the other is hosting people. There's a ton in scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, that talk a lot about our dinner tables. That this is the place that we gather people for fellowship. This is where we gather strangers who are alone. This is where we gather people who literally need a meal and can't feed and fend for themselves. That the dinner table becomes a chief place to express love and hospitality. We also open up our living rooms. Those become places of prayer. Those become places of gathering. Those become places for life groups meeting together and worship. We open up spare bedrooms and that's where people stay when they need a night to stay. We open up our house to these things to be a blessing. It's amazing to remind ourselves that in the earliest church, in the book of Acts and beyond, the church never had a dedicated building called the church building. Like what we have today, that did not exist for hundreds of years because the church only and forever, 20, 30, 40 people met in somebody's living room and that was their worship space. God says a home is something you build, you enjoy, and you use it as a blessing for the city. That's what he calls us to. Well, number two, he says, plant gardens and eat, he says in verse five. Now I have a huge front yard garden. And so really I was just looking for a proof text to spend more time in my garden and justify the money that's going there. And so now I have it. 
But if you think about an agrarian society in Israel and you think about that most of their work was around growing crops, you could expand this to be referring to all of our vocation and work. You're to work, you're to be gainfully employed. This is what God is calling us to do. So this is the do element. By God's design, not every Christian who gets saved goes into full-time ministry. Isn't that curious to you? That not every believer who is born again is then called to to full-time ministry? That most Christians, by God's design, have to get real jobs? (laughs) Not like mine, you got to do something and work with your hands. I mean, Paul and Timothy wrote to the Thessalonians, if somebody in your church body is not working and can work, that person shouldn't eat. Because every believer who is able is called to be gainfully employed because that is God's command and that's an act of worship to him, to do your job and do it well. So that's the do element. But then you have this enjoy element, like we have with each of the commands. And not everyone in this room would use the word enjoy in the same sentence as the word of their work. But we're reminded that work isn't a curse. It isn't part of the fall. It actually existed before the fall in the perfect Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had a job to do, to tend to the garden. So it wasn't part of the fall. This is part of God's perfect creation. And actually, I believe we work in the new heavens and the new earth because when Jeremiah talks about this language of tending to the garden and enjoying and eating its produce, you think back to the Garden of Eden and tending to the garden and enjoying its produce, and you think forward to the new heavens and the new earth where the prophets say, every one of us will sit under our own vine and fig tree. We will tend to, we will enjoy that when we think about our work, We think about something that is tied to our humanity that will be redeemed and fulfilled forever. So believers, we find ways to enjoy the work that God has given us to do and to enjoy the fruit of the work that God has given us to do. But just like a house, now I'm reorienting myself around my job My job is for the welfare of the city. When I work hard at my job or when I create a new business, it is a means by God to bless my community, bless the city, and there's applications all over scripture of this. Working hard at my job is an act of worship. Creating fair and equitable places, workplaces, is an act of worship. Showing forth this biblical work ethic is an act of worship. When I earn money, I can save money to give to those in need. That is an act of worship. I was reminded that Israel, not only does she tithe what she produces from the garden and from her crops, but then she also leaves the corners of her crops so that those who are in need can come and take additionally from what she is producing so that they have something to eat and something for those in need. All of that is by God's design a blessing from our work to our communities in his economy. So we build houses and live in them. We plant gardens and eat from them. Number three, we marry spouses and multiply in verse six. 
Now, I've been told by some in our church body that I tend to preach towards a married with kids crowd, uh, maybe at the expense a little bit of our working singles crowd. And so that's something I'm working on. That's something I want to strive towards. I'm married with kids, and so I lean towards those applications. But then I run smack into a passage that says, y'all need to get married and you need to start having kids and making babies. So what am I going to do with that? Well, just like houses, just like there are people who are called to an itinerant ministry and don't have a home, and they're not going to build a house and live in it, so also there are believers who are called to singleness. They will be called to single ministry, and God has either planted that call in your heart or he is, you're navigating whether that call is for you. So that does exist. We're not talking about those who are called to singleness. But the rest of us who are single are and of age to be married are probably somewhere in this massive spectrum between those who long to be married and would love to find their future spouse and begin to grow a family, all the way to maybe those who are delaying maturity and they should be seeking a spouse and they're disobedient to that because they're being selfish. So it's a very complex area within this to think about. But the due command here is to pursue a spouse, pursue marriage and family. That's a good thing to pray for. That's a good thing to long for. That's a good thing to go on blind dates for. All of that is an act of worship because all of that is obedience to God's command to say, I want to move my people towards family. Now, by way of application, I was going to print out are singles by age, men on one side, women on the other, and just kind of post them on the door on the way out. Julie thinks that's too extreme, so we're not going to do that, but check your church email this week. God is moving us in that direction, and so we're praying alongside of each other. That's a valuable prayer request to share because many of you have shared with me. I long to be married, and I long to find a spouse. Let's pray towards that end together. So that's the do commands, and of course there's an element to enjoy, that there's such joy in having a family. There's such joy in being a part of the family that we came from, in seeing a new family grow up around us. That's a joy to be had. Remind me of that the next time I get hit in the head with a Nerf gun and I'm vacuuming spaghetti from the dining room floor, that it is a blessing to have children. The psalmist says, blessed are those with children. But once again, just like I reimagine my house just like I reimagine my job. Now I reimagine my family. I thought it was this little budding entity that I kept hidden in my house to protect from being tainted by this crazy world. And Jeremiah says, not so fast. The reason we have a family, the reason we grow and increase in this place is to be a blessing to seek the welfare of this city. There are two passages that come to mind that join blessing with growing family. And the first, Jeff read in the liturgy, Genesis chapter 1, God blessed them and gave us this cultural mandate command to every human being, be fruitful and multiply. And then right away, Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
So we as believers, we pursue marriage and family as something that God calls us to do. He calls us to enjoy. He calls us to use as a blessing for our neighborhoods. Homes, work, family. This is such a visionary, missional perspective on such mundane, plain, domestic, everyday things. Our daily work in God's kingdom is earthy, it's physical, it's dirt under the fingernails. Kingdom work is changing diapers and weeding gardens, but this kingdom work thrives in our city for God's glory to draw people to himself. That's what we do as believers in this hostile place, even as we await the hope that is ours. So God says to Israel and to us, as you do that here and now, as you are in a place that feels very hostile to you and the things of God, and as you labor towards that end, I want you to hear this promise that I have for you. Verses 10 to 14, he says, I'm going to bring you, Israel, back to my promised land. You're going to be there for 70 years. It's punishment for your sin. I'm going to draw you out of Babylon and I'm going to recreate my kingdom in the promised land. I did that in Egypt when I drew you to Israel. Now I'm going to do that in Babylon when I draw you to Israel. He says, I have plans for you and they are plans for your wholeness. I love that. Is there a way to pause in the middle of this quarantine and in the middle of this grief, and this, in the middle of this unbearable sadness, and to hear God say to us even this morning, I have plans for your wholeness. I have plans for your peace and your well-being. I have plans to join you to myself and to grow you up in me. Those are the plans I have for you. They're not plans for evil. Even when they hurt, Their plans for goodness and shalom, peace, the wholeness that I desire to bring. Just as that promise fell on Israel, it falls on us. We as exiles in a strange land, a foreign land that doesn't speak the language of the kingdom, we too who feel like there's not much to be engaged in and to do today, hear this promise. You labor at these things, these very plain things in your home and in your workplace because I have plans to draw you to myself. Jesus says, I'm gonna bring you from the east and the west to recline at the table of Abraham. I will draw you to myself and I will make that wholeness complete. Praise God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you come soon? We long to see you again. We long to see that what feels like is being built out of straw, going to my job tomorrow morning and laboring to make a house a home and growing and and discipling and disciplining a family. Would you show me that all of those are part and parcel of what it means to bless this city for your glory? Use it to draw people to yourself. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.